Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 11 of The City at World's End by Edmund Hamilton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The City at World's End Chapter 11 Revelation The crew of the Thanis came into New Middletown that afternoon, and Keniston and Carroll and all the rest of the city's thousands watched them come. There were two score of them, a hard-handed, alert, capable breed no different from all the sailors Keniston had ever seen though their seas were the incalculable deeps of outer space and their faces were darkened by the rays of alien suns. Across the blowing dust of this world that had bred and lost them, they came, and with them were the others Piers Eglin had spoken of, the strange children of other stars. Keniston had explained about these aliens to Carol, who had seen no more than the tips of Gore Hall's furry ears, and had supposed, like the others, that he was only a peculiar kind of pet. He didn't think that she had really understood him, any more than the people of New Middletown had really understood the mayor's similar explanation. "'From Vega,' Carol had said, and shivered, looking toward the dim sky where the stars showed even in daylight. "'They can't be like us, Ken. No human being could ever go out there and still be like us.' Keniston was startled to hear his own thoughts repeated in her voice, but he said reassuringly, "'They can't have changed too much. And the others, the humanoids, they may look queer, but they're our friends.' It was what Mayor Garris had told his people. "'Whatever these newcomers are like, they've got to be treated right, and there's a jail cell waiting for anyone who makes trouble with them. Do you all get that? No matter what they look like—' Act as though they're people. Hearing is one thing, seeing another. And now Carol's fingers closed tight on Keniston's hand, and her body shrank against his, and the crowd who had gathered to watch this second entrance of the incredible into their midst stared and whispered and moved uneasily. One of these aliens was big and bulky, walking stodgily on massive legs. His wrinkled gray skin hung in heavy folds. His face was broad and flat and featureless, with little, wise old eyes that glanced with shrewd understanding at the staring, silent crowd. Two were lean and dark, moving like conspirators wrapped in black cloaks. Their narrow heads were hairless, and their glance was bright and full of madcap humor. Keniston realized with a shock that the cloaks they wore were wings, 
folded close around their bodies. There was another, who had peculiar gliding grace that hinted of unguessed strength and speed, and whose bearing was very cool and proud. He was handsome, with a mane of snow-white fur sweeping back from his brow, and there was only a faint touch of cruelty in his broad cheekbones and straight, smiling mouth. These four, and Gore Hall, were manlike but not men, children of far worlds walking with easy confidence on old earth. "'They're horrible,' whispered Carol, drawing away. "'Unholy! How can you stand to be near them?' Keniston was fighting down much the same reaction. The Middletowners gaped and muttered and drew back, partly from a creeping fear of the unnatural, partly from sheer racial resentment. It was hard enough to accept the fact that such non-human people existed at all. It was harder still to accept them as equals. Beast was beast, and man was man, and there was no middle ground. But not to Middletown's children. They ignored the bronzed spacemen and clustered in droves around the humanoids. They had none of their elders' preconceptions. These were creatures out of fairy tales come alive, and the children loved them. Piers Eglin came up to Keniston. Keniston said, "'Hubble has the main generator rooms opened up. He's waiting for us there. I'll take you.' Eglin sighed. "'Thank you,' he said. He seemed desperately unhappy. Keniston said a hasty good-bye to Carol and fell in beside the little historian. "'What's wrong?' he said. "'My orders,' said Piers Eglin. "'I am to interpret and to teach some of you our language.' He shook his head dismally. "'It will take days, and that old city of yours, I should be in it every moment.' Keniston smiled. "'I'll try to learn fast,' he said. He led the way to where Hubble was waiting by the generators, and behind him he heard the eerie footfalls of the creatures who were not human, and it was incredible to him that he was going to have to work beside these weird beings who gave him a cold shiver every time he came near them. Surely they could not behave like men. They went into the building, into an enormous room filled with the towering, dusty shapes of armored mechanisms that he and Hubble had not been able to make head or tail of. The senior scientist joined them, looking askance at the humanoids. Keniston said, "'We supposed that these were the main generators.' He spoke to Pierre Eglin, since Eglin must do the translating, but he was facing Gore Hall and the four others who stood beside him. If they can really repair and start them, we—his voice trailed off. The five pairs of alien eyes regarded him, the five alien bodies breathed and stirred, and the crest of white fur on the proud one's skull lifted in a way so beast-like that it was impossible for Keniston to pretend any longer to accept them as human. Doubt, distrust, and just a hint of fear crept into his face. Piers Eglin frowned a little and started to speak. With the suddenness of a bat darting out in the evening, one of the lean dark brothers whipped wide his wings and made a little spring at Keniston, uttering a cry that sounded very much like, Boo! Keniston leaped backward, startled almost out of his skin, and the lean one promptly doubled up with laughter, 
which was echoed by the others. Even the large gray creature smiled. They all looked at Keniston and laughed. And presently Hubble got it and began to laugh, too. And after that there was nothing for Keniston to do but join in. The joke was on him at that. They had known perfectly well how he felt about them, and the lean one had paid him back in his own coin, but with humor and not malice. And somehow, after they had laughed together, the tension was gone. Laughter is a human sort of thing. Keniston mumbled something, and Gore Hall slapped his shoulder, nearly putting him on his face. But when he approached the dusty generators, Gore Hall changed abruptly from a shambling, good-natured creature into a highly efficient technician. He operated hidden catches, and had a shield panel off one of the big mechanisms before Keniston saw how he did it. He drew a flat pocket flash from a pouch on his harness, and used it for light as he poked his hairy, bullet-shaped head inside the machine. His low, rumbling comments came out of the bowels of the generator. Finally, Gore Hall withdrew his head from the machine and spoke disgustedly. Eglin translated. He says, This old installation is badly designed and in poor condition. He says he would like to get his hands on the technician who would do a job like this. Keniston laughed again. The big furry capellan sounded like a blood brother to every repair technician on old Earth. While Gore Hall examined the other generators, Piers Eglin fastened onto Hubble and Keniston, deluging them with questions about their own remote time. They managed at last to ask a question of their own, one that was big in their minds, but that they'd had no chance to ask before. Why is Earth lifeless now? What happened to all its people? Piers Eglin said, Long ago, Earth's people went out to other worlds. Not so much to the other planets of this system. The outer ones were cold, and watery Venus had too small a land surface. But to the worlds of other stars across the galaxy. But surely some of them would have stayed on Earth, said Keniston. Eglin shrugged. They did, until it grew so cold that even in these domed cities life was difficult. Then the last of them went to the worlds of warmer suns. Keniston said, In our day we hadn't even reached the moon. He felt a little dazed by it all. To the worlds of other stars across the galaxy. Gore Hall finally came back to them and rumbled lengthily. Eglin translated. He thinks they can get the generators going. But it'll take time, and he'll need materials copper, magnesium, some platinum." They listened carefully, and Hubble nodded and said, "'We can get all those for you in old Middletown.' "'The old city?' cried Piers Eglin eagerly. "'I will go with you. Let us start at once.' The little historian was afire for a look at the old town. He fidgeted until he and Hubble and Keniston, in a jeep, were driving across the cold ochre wasteland. I shall see, with my own eyes, a town of the pre-atomic age," he exulted. It was strange to come upon old Middletown, standing so silent in the midst of desolation. The houses were as he had last seen them, 
the doors locked, the empty porch swings rocking in the cold wind. The streets were drifted thick with dust. The trees were bare, and the last small blade of grass had died. Keniston saw that Hubble's eyes were misted, and his own heart contracted with a terrible pang of longing. He wished that he had not come. But in that other city, absorbed in the effort to survive, one could almost forget that there had been a life before. He drove the jeep through these deathly streets, and memory spoke to him strongly of lost summers, girls in bright frocks, catalpa trees heavy with blossom, the quarreling of wrens, and the lights and sounds of human voices in the drowsy evening. Piers Eglin was speechless with joy, lost in a historian's dream as he walked the streets and looked into shops and houses. "'It must be preserved,' Eglin whispered. "'It's too precious. I will have them build a dome and seal it all, the signs, the artifacts, the beautiful scraps of paper.' Hubble said abruptly, "'There's someone here ahead of us.' Keniston saw the small bullet-shaped car that stood outside the old lab. Out of the building came Norden Lund and Varn Allen. She spoke to Eglin, and he translated. They have been gathering data for her report to Government Center. Keniston saw the distaste in the woman's clear-cut face as her blue eyes rested on the panorama of grimy mills 